Would you open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9? We're going to be studying verses 20 through 27. Last Sunday, we were, we were invited into Daniel's prayer closet. I mean, that, just what a, what a privilege that was and, and is as you go back and read it again, possibly, or read it for the first time. And we were able to hear what he prayed when he was reading the book of Jeremiah. It was, his prayers were informed and compelled by the book of Jeremiah that Israel's exile in Babylon was, was to be a period of about 70 years. That's what he was learning in Jeremiah. And that these long-suffering prisoners of war were about to be set free. They were about to be released. And, and how did he know? Well, one of the reasons he knew was because the kingdom of Babylon was overthrown by another kingdom, and that was a part of the pro- prophecies that God had given far in advance of this time. Reading God's word compelled Daniel to pray. And he, you remember, if you remember, he thanked God for his mercy and then asked for more mercy. His mercy is more than we can ever dream or imagine. And so he was thankful for God's mercy that he had already shown, but he was asking God for even greater mercy because even though God designed the exile to be a loving act of discipline for God's people. Daniel was still concerned that just because the exile was almost over didn't mean that the people had repentant hearts for, for their many sins against God. I mean, parents, don't we know that kind of situation where we've disciplined our child, but it hasn't really brought them to repentance yet. Um, and so that's what's happening He's concerned that that's what's happening. And I told you this great commentator that's so encouraging to my heart. His name is Dale Ralph Davis. He, he gave the point that he said, what good would it be for God's people to be back in the promised land with unrepentant hearts? How often do we find ourselves in a similar situation with our busy lives? We get convicted by, about our sin. God's word speaks to us. We, we read his word in our devotions. We hear it in a sermon. God convicts us of where he wants to grow us and change us. But we never really get around to dealing with it. Because we just have to keep moving on. Life's busy. There is a lot to do. And what ends up happening is we begin feeling pretty dry. Pretty spiritually numb. And so I'm, it's likely I'm speaking to several people this morning. You're, you're, if you were to kind of evaluate your walk with the Lord right now, would you say it's more dry and numb? Would you say maybe even to the point of doubting sometimes whether God really loves you? Is he really involved in your life? And so Daniel prayed both for his people and for himself. He, he prayed prayers of confession and repentance It was like saying, God, what good will moving on with my life be if my heart is hard and my prayers are cold? And that's where I, you know, so so I think that leading in to the morning's message would be a great time to invite us to pray. To invite us to take a few moments to say, God, I know you've been speaking to me about this issue in my heart, whether it's an ongoing problem with just, just impatience or, or being given over to anger, or I'm just worried sick. 
but I never really stop to turn to you. I just keep moving on and I keep moving on. I think the Lord would say, would you take a minute today? Instead of just moving on, would you move in to, to meet with me and to let me soften your heart again and to prepare you to serve me in the days ahead? Could you do that with me? I'm going to do it. I'm going to get down on my knees to do it. You don't have to do that. <laughs> but let's take a minute and let's just ask God to already be touching our hearts. Father, we're so thankful that we can pray prayers like this, not hoping that you'll be merciful, but because you've already proven yourself merciful. We're so thankful that we're not praying prayers like this to get into your presence, but because you are present. God, would you forgive us for marching to the drumbeat of this world? Busy, 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 do this, get this done, get the kids here, go there. And all the while, we're forgetting the most important thing, to sit at your feet, to desire you be glorified in the transformation of our hearts. So, Lord, as you, as you just would direct each and every heart in a very personal way this morning, uh, Lord, thank you for the conviction of sin. What an evidence that is that you love us. Thank you for the grace to repent, that you actually give us grace to want to change. Thank you for the, your word that guides us through that change. And thank you for your spirit that empowers that change. How we love you and how we need you. And how we ask you to speak to us this morning in your inspired, inerrant, sufficient, and authoritative word. To God be the glory and to our precious church family, Lord, be the joy. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you join me in the reading of God's word this morning, beginning in Daniel 9, starting in verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, <laughs> the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in a vision in the, at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. 
Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Well, I am forever indebted to my precious sister for introducing me to my precious wife. So thankful for that day. They went to college together in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I will never forget the day my sister called me to tell me that even though she knew I was dating a good old New Mexico girl, nothing wrong with New Mexico girls, but she said, I have to tell you, I've met your wife. Yeah, right. Right. You met my wife. Well, as time went on, my relationship with the New Mexico girl came to an end. And my sister introduced me to Jan. It took about 30 seconds for me to be attracted to her faith in Christ, her joy in the Lord, and her love for God's people. Not to mention that I thought she was gorgeous. And I still do, babe. And I still, I still do. But even before we started dating, I was so Twitter-pated. Guys, this, talk to me about this. You know, well, you'll see why I say that in a minute. <laughs> I was so Twitter-pated about her that before we were even dating, I said, in my most romantic way, trying to be swarthy and romantic-looking, um, you know, I could be falling in love with you. To which Jan replied, thank you. <laughs> I mean, guys, right? Thank you. I pour my guts out to you and you respond with thank you? Well, I came to find out later that Jan had decided that there would be really only two men that she would say, I love you to, in a way that was describing a commitment to them. And one, of course, was her dad. Precious dad. I miss him so much. The other would be the man she would marry. So to my younger sisters, I think that's really good advice. I think that's really good advice. You can talk to Jan if you want to talk to more about that. Um, well, that sounds really good to me now. <laughs> I really think that's wise now. It did not sound good to me then, okay? Um, and I was about ready to give up on a possible relationship with her when my sister told me, 
but Billy, Jan really likes you. She does? I mean, oh my gosh, this is so good. This is like the sun breaking through storm clouds. She likes me. <laughs> I know I'm such a goober head, but it just affected me. She, she likes me. But you know, as good as it was to have someone else tell me she liked me, it could not compare to the day when Jan herself told me. Not that just that you liked me, <laughs> but that she loved me. Talk about to the moon. I mean, it was, oh my goodness, it was awesome. And it's the same today. Amy, so you're one of Jan's dearest friends. So Amy, could you tell me today, Amy, does Jan love me? Could you say it a little louder? It's not, <laughs> you're not really... Absolutely. Okay. Thank you, Amy. That is, that is just so good. That's really helpful, but not quite as good as if you, my dear, babe, do you love me? I love you. Oh, yes. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Thank you. Because you, whoever's clapping knows that it's a miracle that I would have anyone in my life, right? That, oh my, anyway, so let's move on from that. Um, knowing that she loves me makes me want to run through a wall for her. It's one thing if somebody else tells you they, that, they, that somebody likes you or loves you. It is completely different to hear it from the person themselves. In our text this morning, we read of the angel Gabriel being sent by God at the speed of light to tell Daniel, oh, you're dearly loved, Daniel. Can you imagine? Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't that be awesome to have an angel come to you and to tell you you're dearly loved? It would be awesome, amen? That would be awesome, but not quite as awesome as to hear God himself say, I love you. Amen? And that's the story of this morning's text. It's God himself, as good as it is, to have an angel declare God's love. How much better it is for God himself to come and tell you that he loves you. And that's what the 70 weeks of Daniel is all about, Charlie Brown. This text is about God declaring to us that he loves us so much that he sent his only son. He made a promise to send the Messiah. He sent his only son to save us from our sins and the judgment that we deserve, that he's prepared a place of eternal joy and peace for us to be with him forever, and that his loving presence will be with us day by day to sustain our faith and strengthen our mission, even though it may come through long seasons of waiting and pain and persecution until he comes again. That is the intended redemptive effect of this prophecy 
concerning the coming of Christ. That's the impact. That's what I'm praying for your hearts today. That you would be freshly amazed and hear God say, how do I love thee? I give you Christ. I tell you I love you in the gift of my son and what he's done for us. Sadly, the interpretation of this passage is much disputed. Listen, in the Bible, the plain things are the main things. And the main things are the plain things. That's right. The intended redemptive effect of this passage is to hear God say, I love you. I've proven my love for you in the gift of my son and the sacrifice he made for your sins. And I'll sustain you in that love until I come again. That's great news for our hearts. The dispute about this passage is mainly between three theological camps in regard to the coming of Christ. There's the premillennial camp, there's the amillennial camp, and there's the postmillennial camp. So let me say this morning from the very start, if you have a premillennial view of the second coming of Christ, welcome. Let me say this. If you have an amillennial view of the second coming of Christ, welcome. Let me tell you this. If you have a post-millennial view of the second coming of Christ, welcome. I would even go so far as to say if you were born between 1981 and 1996 and are just proud to be a millennial, welcome. <laughs> you are welcome too. The unity of our fellowship at Sovereign Grace Church is not based on which eschatological view you hold, but in our expectant hope that Jesus is sure to come again, and he will come and finally and fully establish his kingdom. And so here's how I, listen, just if you're new with this this morning, I thought, you know what, it might not hurt for all of us to see this in what our statement of faith says about the second coming of Christ and where we all commit to agreeing to. Okay, so here we go. This is in your notes. This is from our statement of faith. The bodily resurrection of those who have died in Christ and their translation together with those who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord is the imminent and blessed hope of the church. While we acknowledge many different end time interpretations of scripture, we confess that God in his own time and in his own way will bring the world to its appropriate end. According to his promise, Jesus Christ will return personally, personally and visibly in glory to the earth. The dead will be raised, and Christ will judge all men in righteousness. The unrighteous will be consigned to hell, the place of everlasting and conscious punishment. The righteous in their resurrected and glorified bodies will receive their reward and will dwell in inexpressible joy forever with the Lord. So we are to number one, love his appearing, and look with anticipation for his return. Number two, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. We acknowledge that if Christ himself said that no man knows the day or the hour of his appearing, we are not wiser than Christ himself. And number three, we humbly agree that we are to keep our lamps trimmed we want to be spiritually prepared in our own consecration to Jesus 
in readiness for his imminent return. And you see there's a bunch of cross-references if you'd like to just dig deeper and study those yourself. Maybe a, a good way to, to conclude this introduction. There's a, a, a dear pastor, for, pastor for many years, wrote a lot of different commentaries named Warren Wearsby. And he was preaching. He said that this was a true story. He was preaching on the second coming of Christ. And he had charts and he had all these things about how all, the, all this was going to unfold. And all the plans. It was just going to look exactly like this. And he didn't realize that that day there was an older pastor. He'd retired. He was an older pastor. He'd come up to, to Wearsby at the conclusion of the story and, and he, at the sermon. And, and he said to Wearsby, he said, You know, when I was younger... Speaking, right, he's comparing himself to Wearsby. Um, you would have thought that I was on the planning committee for the second coming of Christ. He said, you know what I've learned now as an older pastor? I just want to be on the welcoming committee. And I think that's good ground for us to walk on as we go through this. So I'm going to teach this from the standpoint of of where, what I think the text is saying to us. I think it will hold value to you regardless of which eschatological camp you're in. I pray that it will just mainly remind you that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases and his mercies will never come to an end. He loves you and he will declare it himself to us this morning. So here's the main point, very long main point, but it's in your notes. In Daniel 9, 20 through 27, we hear God declaring to us that he loves us so much that he sent his only son to save us from our sins and the judgment we deserve, that he has prepared a place of eternal joy and peace for us to be with him forever, and that his loving presence will be with us day by day to sustain our faith and strengthen our mission through long seasons of pain, persecution, and waiting until he comes again. And I hope you'll see that as we go through the text this morning. So the first point this morning is that God declares his great love for us in Christ. So what Daniel was learning in the book of Jeremiah, a little bit of kind of a little bit of a review to dive, to move forward, was that after a 70-year exile, God was going to judge Babylon and God's people would be able to return to their land. And you really see that in verses 1 and 2. And we looked at that last week in chapter 9. The Medes and Persians had recently conquered Babylon. So, wow, can you, I mean, isn't that something? Almost you almost kind of could get like goosebumps about this to go, oh my goodness. This is, what I'm reading about the prophecy in Daniel is actually happening in real time right now. This is, this is amazing. That this, this, what seemed like this unbeatable kingdom, evil kingdom of Babylon has been defeated. And God said it would happen. And God said that when that happens, that is going to be about the time that my people are going to come back to the land. So he, Daniel's recognizing that, that part of the prophecies in Jeremiah are being fulfilled. But there was more to that than just going back to the land. And as Daniel continued to study Jeremiah, so this would be, for those of you who really like to get deeper into things, man, go back and read the book of Jeremiah and its tie-ins to the book of Daniel. It would profit your heart a ton. So as Daniel is studying Jeremiah, he would have also seen that God had planned to make a new covenant 
(laughs) a new covenant with his people. And in giving that new covenant, God would give his people new hearts. Hearts that really could be wholly devoted to him. Hearts that would love him and serve him. And you can actually see that in Jeremiah 31 in that chapter if you want a reference point. So Daniel is praying for the restoration of Jerusalem. He's praying for the coming of the Messiah. And he's praying for those new hearts for his people. And it's at that time that Gabriel... Guys, I, don't, I wish I could describe this. The way this is being described here, um, it's, it's like the speed of light. That Gabriel comes like the speed of light with an answer to his prayers. And he tells Daniel that as soon as you began praying, God's answer went out. And that God was not only going to have Gabriel tell Daniel of his great love, God himself was going to declare his great love. And it would go far beyond Daniel. And it would go, I mean, thousands of years ahead to 2021, August, what are we? Thank you, babes. Babe, do you love me? Yeah, I love it. Oh, let's go. Um, 29th, did you say? So August 29th. Guys, what God spoke then, he's saying to us now. He loves us. And he sent his son to prove it. So that's what this is. It's, it's, it's amazing grace to Daniel to hear from an angel that God loves you. But we here this morning have the privilege of knowing that he loves us because he sent his son to prove it. So verse 24b, I just, well, verse 24, let's just kind of go into verse 24. I want you to see just some some bullet points at the amazing declaration of God's love. So if you're newer, maybe if if you're just kind of exploring whether you would consider Christianity and maybe as your worldview, Maybe you're just wondering, maybe, maybe Jesus is, my, is the answer. A lot of people say Jesus is the answer. Or maybe if you're new in the faith, um, you may be measuring God's love more on the basis of your circumstances than on the basis of Scripture. You may be basing your, your experience of whether God loves you or not on did you have a good day or a rotten day. Harder to believe on the rotten day that he loves me. How do I know God loves me? And this is what we taught our kids growing up. This is what I love to tell the young people today. How do you know God loves you? And the answer is very simple. Because of the cross of Christ. And so you're going to see this prophetic word of the cross of Christ unfold here. So be listening for the declaration of God's love for you. Here's, here are some of the amazing declarations of God's love that would come when he would send the Messiah, when he would send his son to save his people from sin. Daniel asked God, would you be merciful? And God said, oh, my mercy's more than you can ask or imagine, Daniel. And here's where it goes. Here's the first one. Oh, he's going to come to finish the transgression. In other words, there would be an end to exile. There would be an end to captivity. The, the captives would go free. He was going to put an end to sin. You see that in the text. An end to sin. So let's look at what does that mean? An end to sin's penalty. When Christ died on the cross, the punishment and wrath we deserve for every sinful thought, every evil deed was fully paid for in Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So Jesus paid sin's penalty. But now Christ joins himself to the believer, right? Christianity 
is about a union with Jesus. It's not just believing facts about him. It's submitting our life to him in such a way that we, we call out to him in, in repentance and in faith and in the blink of an eye, the speed of light. When we, can, when we desire that he be our Lord and Savior, he joins himself to us. That's the beauty of Christianity. There's, there's no hope for us to try to think Christianity is just believing in, in a historical figure named Jesus and then just trying to live a better life. That is not Christianity. Christianity is that Jesus sends his Holy Spirit, joins himself to us, and empowers us to now be able to walk and live in a manner worthy of him. He's, he enables us to be able to, to live and move and breathe and, and, and give wholehearted devotion to him. So, so Jesus comes and saves us from sin's penalty. Jesus comes and gives us strength over sin's power. And there's a coming day, isn't there? That Jesus is coming again to save us from sin's presence. There won't be another moment where we deny him. And turn to sin instead of Christ. Oh, I'm looking forward to that day, aren't you? Johnny Erickson Tata said recently, somebody was, you know, Johnny Erickson Tata is a young lady who was, uh, she was diving into a, a lake. She didn't know that it was shallow where she was diving. She broke her neck in such a way she was a, she's been a quadriplegic for um, I don't know how many years. Prayed for healing. That healing's never, never come um, in, in terms of her physical body. And and somebody said, I bet you're looking forward to heaven, aren't you? Because there you'll be healed. You know what she said? She said, well, that'd be nice. But what I'm really looking forward to is not sinning against my Lord anymore. Jesus came to put an end to sin. Jesus came to atone for iniquity. It's in, so we're just kind of unfolding what, what the scripture itself is saying. To atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. That means perfect legal justification that Christ paid it all. All to him we owe. We're not just forgiven of sin, we're counted righteous in Christ. Oh, that's amazing news. And so there's this perfect justification. No more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the news just gets better because there is coming a day when there will be a perfect kingdom of righteousness, eternal righteousness, where there will be no sin, no suffering, and no Satan. And he came to seal both vision and prophet. That means to authenticate God's word, to fulfill the, 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 the law and the prophets, to vindicate it, to complete it. It all now is wrapped up in Jesus. And he came to anoint a most holy place. ESV says place. It really leaves... That's just the interpreters just felt like, well, put place. It could be as much person... Uh, which I think really it, it's the better translation. And that took place, y'all, when Jesus was baptized and God declares, this is my son. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And he is the better temple. He is the place. You want to meet with God? Well, you, you, you and I don't have much hope for that in our sinful state. We need a place to meet with God where there could be an intermediary 
We need somebody to make an appeal for us. We need somebody to represent us. He's holy. We're sinful. Jesus is that holy one. He is that holy place. If you could, in that way, it'd be a right way of saying it. He's that holy place. And in Christ, holy God and sinful man is reconciled. Amen? So isn't this an amazing, this is all good, good news. This is all God's way of saying, oh, how I love you. Oh, how I love you. Now, I just want to pause there for a minute because I know in a group this size, some of you are yearning to have a fresh experience of God's love. And God knows it. And God brought you here this morning to hear this text and to behold Jesus and the work he's done for you on the cross. Don't, don't look to your circumstances don't judge God's love on the basis of you having a bad day or a bad week or a bad month. God loves you and proved his love to you in Christ's death for your sins. That's what you most needed. What would it do for you if you had a thousand good days and died without Christ? What good is that? Is that love? No, precious ones, that's not love. Love is this, that he was bruised for our transgressions. He was wounded. He was, if I get it in the backwards, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was placed upon him. What a God. What a God. Well, the second is this. The second point is knowing God's love prepares and sustains us in seasons of pain and persecution. So God's now going to show Daniel that the promise of his love in Christ is going to sustain him. Or we could say at this point, the promise of his love in the Messiah would sustain him and his people through long seasons of pain and persecution as they waited for God's perfect timing for the coming of that son. Verse 24 says it this way. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. Then he goes on with all the blessings we just described. To finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, etc. Seventy weeks. What is that talking about? Well, it's, it really could be translated 77s or 70 weeks of years. The week he's talking about here is referring to seven years. Not seven days, but seven years. And so you, then you would trans, translate that into 77s is 490 years. So God is telling Daniel that his timing is always perfect. And even though God was not sending the Messiah immediately, knowing that God loves us and God will keep his promises, prepares us to wait for his perfect timing. And that applies to us. Not, not now in his first coming, we know he's come. But that prepares us, doesn't it, to wait for his second coming. So we're, we're going to trust his perfect timing, even if the waiting involves pain and persecution. So this is where many good and godly theologians disagree about what God is meaning by the 490 years. Is the emphasis on the chronology of the time frame? Or is the emphasis on the theology of the time frame? As your pastor, I'm going to say, and what, I, what my commitment to your heart is, I believe it's on the theology of the time frame. Let's consider that for a moment. Is the Bible giving us exact dates 
about Christ's first coming? And if this passage is referring to exact dates of his coming, does that mean that there's then a way to figure out when he's going to come again? Well, it's interesting that Jesus uses the same numbers when describing how often we're to forgive somebody who sins against us. Anybody have that thought? 70 times 7. Does that sound a little familiar? How many times? And, and I, was it Peter? Probably Peter. Peter saying, how about this? And he's thinking, this is really good. If my brother sins against me seven times and I forgive him seven times, do I get the prize then? Do I get the forgiveness prize then? And really, the other part of what he's saying is, and after that, can I hate him? <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, I'm just going to go through the, the ritual of getting up to that seven times and make myself feel righteous. And then after that, I don't have to do anything with that person. And Jesus says, uh, no, no. How about 70 times seven? So does that mean that you start recording in your Google calendar that Eric is trying to teach me to use? How, how many times each day that I forgave a person who keeps sinning against me? And once I've reached the 490 mark, I can mark that date on my Google calendar like it's some sort of weird holiday and have a party celebrating the fact that I no longer have to forgive that person anymore. No, it's not saying that, is it? It's saying that forgiveness is a lifestyle for a Christian. It's not just an act that you do. It's the way we live. Thank God that Jesus forgives us. But is it, is it just acts that he does? Or is it his nature? Is it his mission? Is it his joy and delight? So that may be just a message within a message for someone this morning. Maybe you've given some sort of verbal or mental assent that you've forgiven somebody, but bitterness is still just ruling your heart. God's wanting to do a work in your heart, not to just get you to say the words, I forgive you, but to make your heart more like Christ so that you're realizing what I've done to Jesus is far worse than what anyone will ever do to me. And he forgave me. And I'll forgive you. No charge for that little extra message. Um, so it's, it's saying it's a lifestyle. It's saying it for, doesn't matter how long it takes a person to change and stop hurting you. You're going to be patient. You're going to walk with Jesus. You're going to magnify Jesus. And you're going to display his love through your forgiveness of that person. Forgiveness is possibly one of the most Christ-like things we'll ever do. We want to have a witness for God, but we walk around with bitterness. Come on, church. He died so that we could be like him. He made a new covenant with us so that we could be changed and walk with forgiveness as a lifestyle and not just religious duty. So if God gave us, this is in your notes, if God gave us exact dates for Christ's first and second coming, I think our tendency would be to not walk by faith, but to walk by dates. To be led by chronology rather than theology. They certainly... This certainly, though, shows us God's heart. This chronology, there is a chronology, and we're not disregarding that. This time frame shows us much about God's heart and what he promises to do to save his people from sin and to fully and finally establish his kingdom and giving us even time frames for that to be accomplished. 
So as such, I believe that these 70 weeks are pointing to how they all culminate in Christ's first coming. And then beyond that, point us to his second coming. And going back to the intended redemptive effect of this passage, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't point to you what would have come to the mind of a Jew who knew his Old Testament. And that that there was another use of this 77s. um, And it um, it was in reference to the year of Jubilee. And I think that that was supposed to be coming to the mind of God's people in exile because the year of Jubilee was was supposed to fuel their hope and their joy. That that a great experience of God's uh, spirit and power was going to happen to set them free and give them future joy. So the 77s would remind people of that year of Jubilee. So I've given you a a quote from Leviticus 25. And if you'll just follow along with me as we read that. You shall count seven weeks of years. Seven times seven years. So that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the 10th day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty through the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. So notice that the 50th year counted as what followed seven times seven years. In other words, 49 years. So I think we're on solid ground to say if if the 50th year was to be a year of jubilee. What was it to be like after 490 years? Scripture's talking about, listen, if this year of jubilee was exciting after 49 years, what would it be like after 490? What would that jubilee be like? Tenfold joy. Well, you know what? Did you ever, does this bring to mind something Jesus said in his ministry? This is in your notes from Luke 4, verses 18 through 20. Jesus is is actually reading from the book of Isaiah, chapter 61. And he says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they would have heard, wait, could this be that, that prom, that long promised year of jubilee that only the Messiah could bring? Is that what's happening? This, it's, we're not looking for exact dates for us to know specific periods of time. 
But to know that what God is doing is he's helping us know that he's working an unstoppable plan. I, I think date setting is just so close to just stumbling. Because, because if the dates are not lining up the way you hoped, your hope in the Lord is diminished. I think what, what God's wanting to take out of this is to say... I have designed perfect time frames throughout redemptive history. And I've proven to be faithful at the starting of a time frame, at the ending of a time frame. And I'll continue to be faithful until you see me face to face. So God begins to show his people signs that he's fulfilling his prophetic promise, even though it will involve times of waiting and difficulty. So verse 25 says, Know therefore and understand from the time of the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. The start of this prophetic word is from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And this is going to be in reference to that first seven. Right? So he, he, he has a first seven, and then he does a 62 sevens. And I'm just going to really kind of look at them as one unit, but let's kind of unpack that. So this would be the first seven weeks referred to here. And I believe, because of just Scripture cross-references, and I just don't have enough time to give you all of them today, but I believe that it was the decree of Cyrus in 538 to return and rebuild the temple. And this would have been so kind to Daniel. Because Daniel would still have been alive at this point. So can you imagine that God not only has sent an angel to declare his love, that Daniel's actually getting a first taste of God fulfilling, beginning to fulfill the promise of sending the Messiah. And that Daniel would also be a witness to, oh my goodness, wait, Cyrus is declaring for the Jews to go home. Why is that important? No, I, think I, I think I gave it to you. Is it in your notes? Is, is Ezra in your notes? Okay, let's look at that. So he had this taste, and this is just one cross-reference. Um, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he might make, that he made a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So whoever is among you of all his people, may, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Now, you're going to see that in 2 Chronicles 36. You're going to see it in Isaiah 44, 28. It's so specific that the word was started with Cyrus. Some think the clock started with the degree of Artaxerxes in 458 BC, sending Ezra and the, and the exiles back to Jerusalem. Some thought, I think it's 445 BC when Artaxerxes sends Nehemiah back to rebuild the walls. Some people like that one because they, they can do some mathematical kind of equations to say, well, here we think this is the date that Nehemiah was, was given to go back, and here was the date of the crucifixion, and wow, that's really pretty close, and it's all interesting stuff. 
It's all interesting stuff, but I think the point is God is fulfilling his word. He's changing the hearts of pagans to send his people home. Why? Because there's no stopping my sending the Messiah. There's no stopping my sending the Messiah. Can you imagine? So I just don't even know what this would be like. You've been a prisoner of war. Let's say you've lived through the whole exile. You've been a prisoner of war for 70 years. What would it have been like to return home after 70 years of exile? I think it would have felt like salvation. <laughs> I think it would have been, man, this is awesome. We get back to Israel. And yes, this, this is like we're saved all over again. Why is life still really hard? Haven't we done that, guys, in just different areas of our lives? That, man, if I could get married. So, babe, this, I love you dearly. You know, I love you dearly. But, babe, isn't marriage hard sometimes? Babe, could you remind me that you love me? Um, yeah, this is so funny. We were on vacation, and Jan, Jan's reading a book, and I look at the book title, and it's, it's called Marriage to a Difficult Man. <laughs> it was written by Jonathan Edwards' wife about him. But, so I guess there was sort of a compliment in there somewhere. I don't know. But um, oh, my goodness. Don't we do that? Don't we, don't we get an answer to prayer? And maybe it's that, oh, I'm getting married, I'm married. Or maybe we've been waiting and longing for children and they come. And, but then you realize, oh man, marriage is hard. Oh, parenting is hard. Only Jesus saves, doesn't he? And I think what's happening here is God saying, don't confuse my blessings with salvation. Don't, con don't, and I, the reason I'm saying this is because as pastors, we are called to prepare you for hard times ahead. And, and we want you to celebrate the graces and goodness and gifts of God. We want to celebrate them, but we don't want to confuse them with salvation. We don't want to confuse them as, oh, I've got this blessing, now life is easy. It's not going to be. It's not going to be. But Jesus will be with you. Every step of the way. It, it was, it, the being in the land was not saving them. Rebuilding the temple was not salvation. The Messiah had not yet come. But these things took place so that they could know God loves them and made a promise to bring them home while, while they were yet waiting on the promise of His coming. And that's why the text says, did you notice the text? Did you notice... They're back in the land, but there were many troubles ahead. There were many troubles ahead. And he goes on and he says, for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. That's, that's where, there it is right there. Israel would still face. So now they're back home, right? They're, they're in Israel. The temple's been rebuilt. But you, we've, we've, we've tried to be good students of Daniel. And we remember, here come the Greeks. Oh my, such evil they did. Out of the Greeks came Antiochus Epiphanes. And then here comes Rome. But someone else came too. 
It says that at the end of the 69 weeks, the Messiah came. And that's where I'm going to end the message. So hopefully I'm leaving you wanting more. I have to stop because your stomach is probably now wanting more as well in terms of lunch. Um, So next week we'll unpack this 70th week of Daniel. Um, But I think the Lord's been speaking to us really clearly already, hasn't he? We know this prophecy came true. Jesus came. Jesus died. Jesus was buried. Jesus rose again. And he's coming a second time for all those who love him. Would you stand with me? And let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for going to such great lengths to tell us that you love us. And you know, that's my prayer this morning, Lord. It'll be my prayer next Sunday too. It'll be my prayer between this Sunday and next Sunday. For every heart here, for every heart that's maybe having to connect with us on on the live stream, would you more than ever convince people's hearts of your great love? That it's found in Christ. It's found in his work on the cross. It's found in his presence to walk through us, with us through every trial, every temptation, every pain, and every persecution so that we can live on mission for you until you come again. Please, Lord, would you pour out your spirit upon these precious people? Please, let them leave not just hearing the truth of your love, but can you use the truth to help them experience your love this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.